Well, we are always so appreciative of Greg and those who serve with him to lead us in worship and to just prepare our hearts um, to listen and respond to God as he speaks to us through his word. So thank you, brother, for that. And thank you, man, for taking up the offering. I hope that you have a Bible with you this morning. And I want you to invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. I hope you will find your place there and I hope also when you came in you got a copy of that bulletin. On the back of that there will be some notes that if you want to reference those during our time together in the Word, feel free The uh, just the notes just to follow along to kind of plant in some of the things that I hope that God shows us and speaks to us as we look here in 1 Kings chapter 18. We are in the second half of a series of Advent messages that I am trying uh, to bring before us and just asking the question of why do we need a Savior? This is the, the Christmas season and we always talk about the Christmas time and many times we will think, oh yes, this is the time that we remember that God sent His Son to come to this earth to be born, to live that sinless life so that He could take that penalty and that payment that we deserve in Himself and to be that propitiation or that atonement for us and to live that life so that we might have life in Him. But sometimes we need to ask ourselves, especially in the busyness of the season, why do we really need a Savior? Some people may quickly say, well, we need a Savior because we've sinned. We, we need to be forgiven and saved from our sins. But then someone else could follow back up and say, well, what is such a big deal with sin? If we need a Savior, it's because of our sin. And what about our sin necessitates a Savior? So the first week I wanted you to see and wanted us to see together the separation that sin brings between us and our Creator, us and God. That, that separation we sin against God. And then last week we were looking at the deception, how sin is so quick and so apt in being able to deceive us from God's will, God's direction, God's plan, God's purpose for our lives. And the next thing you know we find ourselves being deceived by Satan and by the, the temptations of the flesh and the temptations of sin. And we find ourselves maligning or readjusting what God says and trying to come up with our own truth and trying to come up with our own path and how it is that we serve God. This morning I want to continue in that thread asking the question, why do we need a Savior? And especially what is such a big deal with sin by just saying that from the very top, the reason why we need a Savior and the reason why sin is such a big deal is because sin causes us to compromise. Sin causes us to compromise. Whether compromising our values, whether compromising our ethics, whether compromising our truth, whether compromising our obedience, whether compromising our faithfulness, or just compromising our willingness to submit our lives to God, sin has a way of coming in and causing us to compromise, not before one another, but causing us to compromise before a holy God. So in 1 Kings 18... It's going to be a little different this morning because I'm going to start in verse 20 of 1 Kings 18. We're going to read the kind of the focus. So it's like one of those movies that you start with and you get to the scene. And then the movie backtracks and takes you all the way back to the beginning. And then it shows you everything to lead up to that scene and then moves forward. So this morning we're going to start in verse 20 of 1 Kings 18. We're going to read just the two verses. But then I want to back up, so I hope you'll leave your Bible open or hope you'll leave your Bible turned on because I want to back up. We're going to pick out of chapter 16. We're also going to pick out of chapter 17 to try to understand 
what the, the gravity, the importance, the magnitude of these two verses here in 1 Kings 18 verses 20 and 21. So read along in your copy of God's Word as I read aloud. L- listen to these first two verses and then we will step back and build the story from the beginning. Verse 20 is God's Word says, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Verse 21, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. You may come to this passage, you may say, I don't have any idea what's going on, Spence. I don't understand what is being said. I don't understand the context. I don't understand the, the, the relationship of why this even matters to me. So let me catch you up a little bit. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 and, and God calls into a man's life by the name of Abram. And he comes to Abram and he says, all right, Abram, I have chosen you. You are going to be the beginning of a great People, if you will serve me, if you will follow me, I will use you mightily to become a great nation of the people. And it is from that calling of Abram, there in Genesis chapter 12, that we have the whole nation of Israel. Even the Jewish people today all trace their lineage and their historical ancestry all the way back to Abram. From Abram it went to Children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Then you had Jacob and his family moving into the land of Goshen there in Egypt. And 400 years of slavery and servitude and bondage there in Egypt. And then God brings them out under the leadership of Moses. They leave there in Egypt after over 400 years in captivity. God brings them to the promised land. Brings them to what is now modern day Israel. He allows them to conquer and to be settled into that area. Then you see the period of the judges and God raises up these judges as they had come in and they had settled there in the promised land. That land had been divided. You think about counties in the state of Oklahoma. Those promised land people, those Israelites had come in. They divided the 12 tribes in 12 allotments in the country and there began, they started to rule themselves through a period of judges. God would raise up a judge to lead the people. That judge would go away. He'd raise up another judge. Well, then the people got together and said, we want a king. Samuel, the last judge, said, you don't want a king. They said, we want a king. He said, okay. So Saul gave, or so God gave them Saul. Saul then led to David. David led, led to Solomon. And then after Solomon, the kingdom was divided. The ten northern tribes in that land became what is known as here in the text of Israel. The two southern tribes split, became what is known as Judah. And from the time of Solomon's death forward, you had these divided kings. So when you come in here to 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and you see all these names, you are coming into a people that were distracted. They've been called by God back in Genesis chapter 12 and said, if you will serve me, I will be your God and I will give you direction and I will give you provision and I will take care of you. And then through incident after incident, the people continued to rebel. They continued to turn away from God. They, become, they, they continued to become distracted in their devotions to God. And the next thing you know, you have a people that go back and forth and back and forth, wavering to and fro, not knowing, not living, not Being obedient to God. So then you come into the passage that we're in this morning. And Ahab takes the throne. In fact it says back in 1 Kings chapter 16. It says there in verse 30. 
verse 30, it says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, who now is assuming the kingship of Israel, he did more evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. As we come into this passage, we're seeing a divided people. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. You're seeing a kingship that was not really God's idea from the get-go. And you're seeing evil people leading the people of God. In other words, what you see is sin and rebellion that is rampant. And it is all over the place. And what you come to is you understand that not only had evil men began leading the people of God, but idolatry was present. Now what is idolatry? Idolatry is something that you and I have in our lives that takes the proper place of God. Idolatry can be a possession. Idolatry can be a relationship. Idolatry can be a hobby. Idolatry can be a behavior. Idolatry can be anything that takes your devotion and puts it there instead of your devotion to God. And so the people had become to worship Baal. They had become to worship all of these idols. Ahab marries Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel then bring this worship of Baal into the people of Israel. And so now you have these people of Israel. And they know that they are God's people. And they are to be devoted and obedient to God. But they also know that they want to have this whole Baal thing. And so they're wavering back and forth. And as the Bible says, as Elijah says there in 1 Kings 18, they are limping. You ever been there in the restaurant? Several of you around the table and you had the menu in front of you. Can't decide what to do. Can't decide which way to go. Here comes the server. The server comes up to the table and says, well, are you all ready to order? And everybody looks at each other. And you always know who doesn't have a clue because they always say, well, you go first. And then they start rounding around the table and that person starts telling them, hey, I'd like to order this and I'd like to order this and I'd like to order this. And meanwhile, I'm back over there trying to, trying to figure this out. I've got to order something. I'm limping back and forth between decisions. And we're in a day and age, brothers and sisters, where we are divided. We're divided and we are distracted. And our devotions are constantly under siege as this world is saying, be devoted to me, pay attention to me, look at me, be fixated on me. I need attention, I need devotion, I need your priority. And the next thing you know, we find ourselves being guilty of compromising our faithfulness and obedience to God because of our devotion to God has started to wane. I want to remind you this morning that devotion is a discipline. And your devotion determines your direction. So here into this passage comes Elijah. And Elijah comes in and he gathers all the people together and he just simply looks at them and says, here it is. Either you are going to follow God or you're going to follow this world. Now, so many times when someone comes in and makes a statement like that, you say, well, what right do they have to call us to do anything? So many times the preacher shows up and the preacher says, well, you shouldn't do this or you should do that. One of the first responses is, well, who is he that gets to tell me what to do? He has no right to judge me. He doesn't know what he's doing. Or when someone else tries to speak in our lives, we immediately say, well, what about your fault? And what about your wrong? And what about your mistakes? What right do you have to tell me? I realize it's a little bit different this morning, but let's step back and look at the resume of Elijah. 
Or more, than, more so than that, I want to, in the next few moments that we have together, just go through some actions that we see in the testimony of Elijah's life that allowed him to be there at 1 Kings 18 to look at the people and say, either be devoted to God or not. Maybe put it a different way. What are some ways that we can look at our lives today and ask, what are we devoted to in our daily lives? So you go back up there to 1 Kings chapter 17. Ahab, Jezebel had brought the worship of Baal. They brought the idolatry of Baal into the land. And then it starts off there in chapter 17 and verse 1 with the calling of Elijah. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab. It's similar to just saying, Evan from the family of Green living in Wellston in the state of Oklahoma. It's just identifying who that person is. So he just says that they had, he said, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Now can you imagine the setting? Imagine the scene. Ahab is a wicked king. People knew that he was a wicked king. They knew that he was leading him in a way that wasn't in accordance to God's word. And so God comes to Elijah and says, all right, Elijah, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go to the king and you're going to tell the king, it's not going to rain till I say so. <clears throat> can you imagine God coming to you? The land is crooked. The land is despicable. The land is in rebellion and sinful for God. You go to the people. It's not going to rain until I tell you to. But that's exactly what Elijah did. He goes and he looks at Ahab. And in, in, in a sense, he looks at the whole entire country of people. And he says, it's not going to rain until I say so. But then it goes on in the text. Verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. You see there in your notes, I want to remind you that one of the ways that we strengthen our devotion to God is that we trust in God's direction. We trust in God's direction. Can you just imagine if God comes and he says to Elijah, Elijah, I want you to go tell the people, it's not going to rain till you say so. Elijah says, all right, God, I'll do that. But then God says, I'm not done with you. Now I have something I want you to do. Now I have a direction for your life. So the reality is that many of us miss is that God has a place and a purpose for each of us. God has a plan for your life. And God has a direction that he desires for you, for me, for us to go. God has this whole thing mapped out. If we would just listen to God. Elijah is sitting there. He looks at Ahab and the people. He says, it's not going to rain. Then what does God do? God says, okay, I want you to go. I want you to live by this. It calls it a brook here in the text. It's what we think of to be a creek. It's not a river. It's not a big tributary. It's just some little old stream. And he says, I want you to go stay by the stream. And you're going to drink out of the stream. And I'm going to feed you with the ravens. What is a raven? A raven is the bird that eats of the roadkill. A raven is not the big hunter of an eagle. A, a raven is pretty much just a glorified vulture. Turkey vulture, if you will. And can you imagine God looking at Elijah and saying, Okay, Elijah, you said it's not going to rain, but now my direction for your life is I want you to go live at the stream. I'm going to feed you with a dirty, unclean bird, and you're just going to have to trust in my direction for your life. Can you imagine Elijah saying, Could I have a second opinion? 
Could you show me in your Bible, God, where it says to do this? Can you make it a little more clear? Or maybe even more so, we'll do the whole thing. Well, let me pray about God. But what does God do? God tells Elijah, this is what I want you to do. And what does Elijah do? It says, verse 5, So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens, verse 6, And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. You may say, well, that is a great story, Spence. But the story doesn't stop there. Because it says in verse 7, Then after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Can you imagine Elijah sitting there and him sitting by the brook and he said, I told him it's not going to rain and it hasn't rained. No, no dew nor rain until I say so. So what do you think is going to happen to this brook? And he's sitting there saying, okay, God, what do you have next? God hasn't revealed his six-month plan. God hasn't revealed his five-year plan. God hasn't revealed his 10-year plan. He just simply said, you go there until I tell you to go someplace else. And in the midst of time, as the Bible unfolds and as the text gives us, it doesn't give us any more information. It doesn't give us any more indication of conversation between God and Elijah. We're just simply left thinking that Elijah is there at the brook saying, I'm going to be here until God tells me to go someplace else. You know, sometimes in our lives, brothers and sisters, God knows when we don't know. I don't know how God's going to come through in this area. God, I don't know how you're going to meet this need. God, I don't know how you're going to work in this person's life. God, I don't know how you're going to soften this person's heart. God, I don't know how you're going to do these things in my life, but God does. And may I remind you this morning that God is never out of ideas. You and I may get to the point in our lives that we don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. We don't know who to look to. We are out of help. We are out of hope. We are out of ourselves. But God never is out of ideas. So Elijah is there. He's by the brook. The brook dries up. I imagine Elijah sitting there going, now what? Well, it gets more interesting. Because then it tells us in verse 8, the word of the Lord came to him, rise and go to Zarephath. So now Zarephath is a town. Elijah gets up. All right. God, I trusted in your direction up to this point. Then he gets up and he goes into Zarephath. So they say, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he rose, went to Zarephath, and when he had came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring, and he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So as he's coming into the town, you can imagine that he's thirsty and he's hungry. He hadn't had a lot going on down there by the brook. And so he comes in, sees the lady, as God had said, and said, could I have something to drink? Then he says, may I have something to eat? Verse 12. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour should not be spent and the jug of oil should not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Verse 15, and she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her household ate for many days, and the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So the first picture that we see of Elijah is that he trusted in God's direction. And then you get to the second picture of Elijah, and we see how he relied on God's tomorrow. 
He relied upon God's tomorrow. He comes into the town. He sees the widow and he says, might I have something to drink? And she said, sure. He said, might I have something to eat? And, he, and she said, well, that's a problem. <clears throat> you see, it hasn't rained for quite a while, as you well know. And because it hasn't rained, we have no crops. And because I'm a widow and I'm destitute, I am impoverished and I am poor and is not helped by the drought. And now I don't have any food. We are starving to death. In fact, what I'm doing right now is I'm going to make our last meal. It has gotten so bad. It has gotten so terrible in the country that people were dying from starvation. And she comes in and says, this is all I'm doing. And so Elijah comes to her and goes, no, 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 no. This is what God said. God said, make something for me first, and then God will take care of you second. You ever been confronted with that kind of dilemma? When God says, put me first, and I'll take care of your second? Sometimes we get to the point that God says, well, put me first, and I will take care of your second. And we go, no, 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 God, you don't understand. How about I put myself first, and then you can have second. And God says, no, 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 no. You put me first and I will take care of your seconds. It's a complete paradigm shift in our thinking and our devotion to God. But what was Elijah and the widow doing? Elijah comes to the widow and says, this is what God had said. He says it to the widow. The widow says, fine, I will do it. They had nothing but the word of God. And that was enough for them to trust in God's provision. You ever been there where you're looking for the sign? You're asking for the sign? God, if you want me to do this, then you're going to have to do this. God, if you want me to do this, then you're going to have to show me in this way. God, would you just give me a sign? God, would you just give me a signal? God, would you just open the door? And sometimes God says, I have given you everything you need in this word of God. What else do you need to be devoted to me? Well, I need a little more money, or I need a little better health, or I need this bill paid off, or I need this debt taken care of. And God says, my word is sufficient. So Elijah comes into this picture and he looks at the woman and he says, God says, as long as you put me first, God will take care of your second. The woman says, well, if that's the word of God, then I will submit to the word of God. Verse 15, she went and did as Elijah said. And then what was the result? And she and her household ate for many days. Brothers and sisters, when you and I put God first, God is faithful to the second. But so many times we miss God's faithfulness to the second because we didn't put God's first. Why? Because our devotions are divided. Why? Because we don't trust that God will do what we hope God will do. Why? Because we say, God, you know what? I realize that you you, you were going to provide for my needs, but I have a lot of wants. And in order to fulfill and satisfy these wants, I've got to compromise my devotion to you. Before you know it, we find ourselves worshiping our wants instead of being grateful for our needs. And it is tempting for you and I to become to the point where we start worshiping our wants. This Christmas season, so much of it is built around consumerism. Some of you have mentioned about how you you just don't even like the Christmas season because it's all built about money. I got to buy a present for every single person. If you don't buy a present, you're just the bad guy. It's got to be a nice present. It can't be a stingy present. 
well, they got to spend this much money, but you don't spend this much money. And it's all about consumerism. We miss the, miss the point of Christ. And more so than that, it's a bunch of people trying to fulfill the wants in their lives instead of relying upon God to provide their needs. Or we have so many wants that overpace our needs and we start saying, God, I know you've got my needs, but you haven't got my wants, so I'm going to go and take care of my wants. And God never led you to go after those wants. And the next thing you know, you find yourselves distracted. Your devotion to God is awry and compromise has seeped into your life because you are worshiping your wants instead of trusting in God for your needs. Or in other words, we often waste the day trying to control tomorrow. God says, ask for your daily bread. Trust in me for the moment. And you and I spend so much of our lives thinking that I've got to amass a certain nest egg so that when I am 65 years old, I can retire and never have to work another day in my life. And I can be on easy street and having it so well. So I will compromise my ethics. I will compromise my devotion to God. I will compromise my integrity before my family. And I will be greedy for that dollar because I think it's going to help me in 20 years from now. And I'm not promised to be here 20 years from now. The next thing you know, we start spending all of our days that God has given us to serve him today, trying to control what is going to happen tomorrow. And Elijah comes in and says, just trust God today and he will take care of your tomorrow. So you notice there in the text, as he goes to the lady, he says, lady, if you put me first or you put God's word first, God will give you enough. Then what does the text say? Does the text say that all of a sudden she goes in there and she had a 10 pound sack of flour and she had 10 gallons of oil? No, what it said is the jar never ran out. It doesn't say this explicitly in the text, so please don't think that I'm trying to malign scripture, but this is just how my mind works. My mind works that there was enough in when she woke up to take care of the day's needs. And as she pours it out, she's like, that's all we got. God, you're going to have to do something. The next morning she wakes up and it's still there again. It was every single day that she came dependent and desperate upon God. God was faithful to her. And yet we're in a day and age. And we're not willing to live From God moment to God moment. Because we think that we're going to go out and we're going to make this thing ourselves. And how many times is God just saying, would you just rely upon me? Our devotion to God becomes distracted and our devotion to God becomes strained. And the next thing you know, we're devoted to our jobs. We're devoted to athletics. We're devoted to hobbies. We're devoted to relationships. We're devoted to responsibilities. We're devoted to ourselves. We're devoted to our debt. We're devoted to a lot of other things that aren't God. And God is looking at his people and saying, how long are you going to waver between the two? Either I'm God or I'm not God. Let's go to number three. So the story gets even worse. You get down to verse 17. You're like, okay, the drought is still on. No rain, no dew, no nothing. Nothing has fallen. Elijah is down there in Zarephath with the widow. What's going to happen? Well, it gets worse. You would think that because they trusted in God, that God would say, okay, I'll take care of everything. And, And they just live the rest of their days in peace and tranquility. But it gets worse. Verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe, there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You come to bring my sin to remembrance and cause death, the death of my son. 
And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper room chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. So you would think that you would look at God and say, God, look at him. They're putting you first. They're prioritizing you. They're living by day by day, relying upon your substance, relying upon your provision. God, would you just give them a break? It says the son died. The widowed mother is distraught. She comes to Elijah and says, what's going on? I don't understand. Elijah takes the child, takes the child to his own bedroom, lays the child on his own bed. And then notice what he says in verse 20. He cried to the Lord. That cried is not just simply he had a little tear. It's not something that he worked something up. It's the idea of anguish. That he was devastated. That he was so compassionate and emotionally engaged. That he came and he cried out to the Lord. He said to the God, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? He asked God, God, have you done this? Verse 21. And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, oh, oh Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. Like another example that we get of Elijah's devotion to God is the asked for God-sized results. He asked for God-sized results. Let me just put it like to you like this. What if you had, what if you have today everything that you asked for Yesterday. What would you have today? If the only thing that you had today is what you asked God for yesterday, what would you have? You see so many times we say, well, you know, and I'm not going to ask for God for that, or I'm not going to ask God for this thing, or I'm not going to do this. And sometimes that sounds good, and sometimes it is out of a true, humble heart. And then other times it's out of arrogance. I'll take care of it myself. I don't need God. I'm not going to bother God with that. Sometimes it's out of arrogance. Sometimes it's out of disbelief. God won't do that. God can't do that. Ah, God. And deep, deep down in our hearts, we either are too arrogant or we're too unbelieving to ask God for God-sized results. So Elijah is holding this dead child, this, this dead son. We don't know the exact age, but a dead son holding him in his hands, lays him in the bed and says, God, would you please raise this child back from the grave? Would you please do something that is so supernatural that only you can get the credit? You see, sometimes we compromise our devotion to avoid desperation. Sometimes the moment gets so bleak, it gets so dark, it gets so hopeless and so helpless that we say, you know what, I'm not going to be desperate for God in this situation. I'm going to compromise my devotion and go figure a way out, a solution from the world. Sometimes we sit there and say, God, I am not going to go your direction and get to where I've got nothing left but for you to show up. And we decide, no, we're going to go get help. We're going to go get substance. We are going to solve it ourselves. And we miss those opportunities. And the only thing we got left in this world is God. Elijah was at that moment. He cried out to God, God, would you revive this child? Verse 22, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived it. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother and Elijah said, see your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your of the Lord of the, of the the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. You see in that text that Elijah asked for what God would do. If I was to sit here and I was to ask God, God, would you give me a brand new car? God could do it. 
But is that in God's will? Or we start saying, God, I want you to give me something that would only lead us to more sin. And we start asking for God to do something that we know would be out of his will and in, in, in contradiction to his word. Elijah was asking God to do something that God would do. And Elijah asked God because he believed that God could do it. Some of the most memorable stories in the life of the church is when the church began to pray for things that only God could do. Awakenings began with that. Revivals began like that. People got saved when people got desperate for God. And brothers and sisters, I wonder in this season of life that we're in both individually and corporately as a church, what is it that we are asking God to do that is a God sized result? What is it that we are asking to do that would strengthen our devotion? What is it that we are asking to do that would be only from him? What is it that we are asking him to do that only he would get the credit? What is it that we're saying, God, we want, we are asking, we are praying, we are crying out, would you do this in our community? Not for our glory, not for our fame, not for our applause, not for our notoriety, but for your glory. Sometimes we, we want to see the church grow so that people look at us and say, hey, look what that church is doing. Not what that God is doing, but what that church is doing. Or we start measuring the success of the church by the people and the money instead of by the spirit and the souls. And we start measuring it with the wrong metrics. We start doing the wrong things. We start asking for the wrong things. Elijah here in this story, Elijah here in this picture, not only he's trusting in God's direction, relying on God's tomorrow, but he's asking for God-sized results. So then after the, the child is raised, verse 1 of chapter 18, the text picks back up and it says, In many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. For three years it had not Dude or rain upon the land. Drought was everywhere. Animals were dying. Crops had failed. Grass was gone. In fact, we're not going to do it for the sake of time, but if you would go on reading in chapter 18 and verse 1, all the way down through verse 19, you will see how Ahab and another man decided, we're going to divide up the animals. We have no more water. We have no more pasture. We have no more grass. You're going to go that direction. I'm going to go in that direction. And we're going to find some place to pasture our livestock so we don't lose all of our livestock. And so they're going because the drought was so severe. So God tells Elijah, okay, Elijah, it's time. What does it say there in verse 20? So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together. Elijah came, he had showed himself to Ahab, and he said, all right, Ahab, it's time that we figure this thing out. It's time that the people decide. Either they're going to continue in the direction of idolatry, or they are going to choose to return back to God. In other words, I put there in your notes... One of the ways that we see Elijah strengthening his devotion is that he lived boldly for God. Well, how do you mean he lived boldly for God? Well, the text tells us there that they gathered the people together. It says there in verse 22, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left of the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophet are 450 men. So there's all the people, 450 prophets of the Baal, 400 prophets of the Asherah. That's verse 19. You have all the people of Israel. They all gather together. And this is the showdown. Eliza says, here's how we're going to know who's the God. All ye prophets of Baal, you set up your altar. You set up your sacrifice. You call for your God to come down supernaturally in fire and consume it. 
If he does it, he's God. If he doesn't, then I'm going to set my altar up to the creator God. I am going to do the same thing. And if he comes down, that means that he is God. And so as the text unfolds in chapter 18, all the prophets of Baal, they put their stuff out. They cry out for half a day saying, God, Baal, would you please do something? And no answer. Elijah comes onto the scene there in verse 30. And Elijah said to all the people, verse 30, come near to me. And the people came near to him. And then it goes on to the story that he repaired the altar, that he took the bull and he sacrificed it in the proper way, the way that God had called him to. He had prepared, he would set it in place, set it on the wood, had everything right. Then he tells them, okay, there's four jars. Some commentators say that as many as 30 gallons in a jar. Take those four jars, fill them with water. Where do you get the water? I don't know. They got the water. They drenched it down because it didn't want anybody saying, well, it's some magical coincidence some slide of hand. He wanted them to know that it was only through the act of God. They took the 120 gallons of water. They drenched the sacrifice, the altar, the wood, everything. Elijah said, do it again. They did it again. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. Now you have the water drenching the sacrifice. There was a little bit of a ditch around the altar. It filled up the ditch. Water was everywhere. Then listen to what Elijah says. Verse 37. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah's simple prayer is, God, show the people that you're God. Show the people your glory. Elijah, he was desperate for God's glory. He was dependent upon God's power. It wasn't like Elijah had a Bic lighter in his pocket. It wasn't like Elijah had rigged some type of pyrotechnics into it. It wasn't like Elijah had the Goodyear blimp flying overhead that the proper time was going to do some type of a lager show. It wasn't like there was anything mischief. It wasn't anything sneaky about what was going on. He wasn't a, a David Copperfield. He was desperate for God's glory. He wanted the people to see God. He didn't want the people to see him. He didn't want the people to see Ahab. He wanted the people to see God. And he was dependent upon God's power. And he was devoted to following God's direction. Whatever God said to do, this is the way you're going to sacrifice. This is the way you're going to prepare. This is the way you're going to come before me. This is the way you're going to obey obey me. This is the way you're going to submit. He said, God, I'm going to do whatever you call me to do. I've trusted in your direction. I've relied on your tomorrow. I've seen you answer prayer. And so now I'm going to live boldly for you. And because he lived boldly for God. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And then when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Because one person was willing to be devoted to God. Because one person was willing to trust in God's direction. To rely upon God's tomorrow. Ask God for God-sized results. Live boldly for God. An entire nation was revived and returned to the proper worship of God. Because one man's devotion to God. Well, Spence, just one person. Not a lot I can do. Well, you know, Spence, it's a big world out there and I've got a lot going on. I just don't have the time. Well, you know, Spence, I think God will understand. Well, you know, Spence, I'm just not the person. Well, you know, Spence, excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. One guy's devotion led to the glory of God being seen by an entire nation. 
You fast forward. Fast forward to the book of Acts. And you got Peter and James and they're sitting before the council. Because they had been going around talking about how Jesus was the Messiah and Jesus was the Savior of the world and the, and, and the Jewish leaders had crucified Jesus but Jesus came back from the grave and he had lived that time. He had ascended back to the Father and they're going around telling everybody, telling everybody about Jesus and who he was and they get arrested and they bring him before the religious leaders and the religious leaders said, stop it, stop what you're doing and they look at the religious leaders and go, you know what, you can tell us all day long what to do. We're going to do what we feel like God's leading us to do and it tells you in the text that they saw the boldness of the men. And they're uneducated. But the Spirit of God was upon them. You get to the book of Acts and the Acts of the Apostles and you see time and time again the reason why that known church reached an entire world in one generation because the church was not methodically accurate. It's not because they had all the technology. It's not because they had unlimited resources. It's not because it was a really small world. It's not because of the fact of their popularity or their applause before men. It was because they were bold before God. And I don't know about you. But I do know about me. That when I start compromising my obedience and my faithfulness to God. My devotion quickly becomes derailed. And I'm not bold for Jesus. Because I don't want to look at you in the face and say, Hey, you need to be faithful when you know that I'm not being faithful. I don't want to look at someone in this community and say, I want you to come to church if they know that I'm full of hypocrisy. I don't want to look at somebody and go, you know that you're wrong, you shouldn't be doing this or confronting somebody in love and in the right heart when they know that your devotion isn't where it's supposed to be. If nothing else, it paralyzes me because God is sitting there saying, do this and Satan is sitting there going, yeah, yeah, you're not going to do that. And my devotion begins to wane and I'm limping back and forth. Between God and the world. <clears throat> You're limping back and forth. So you go back to 1 Kings chapter 18, you go back up to verse 19 or verse 21, and Elijah comes back in. And maybe it makes more sense when he comes back to the people and says, Listen, this is the question. How long are you going to continue to limp between God and Baal? If God is God, then follow him. If Baal is Baal, follow him. But stop the wavering. Stop the limping. Stop the moving back and forth. Stop the fence straddling. Pick a side. And be there. So how do we stop limping? How do we stop limping? Let me just give you a few things that I see based upon this text and we'll be done. First thing I want to remind you of is that faithfulness and devotion are tied together. Faithfulness and devotion are tied together. You're not going to be devoted to God unless you're being faithful to God. And you're faithful, you won't be faithful to God unless you're devoted to God. Faithfulness and devotion are tied together. I, I, I try to emphasize a lot about the desire, the need, my desire for you to be faithful to God. Not necessarily following what I do or following a set of actions or checking a set of box. I want you to be faithful to God. More so than anything, I want you to be faithful to God. And that's what my desire, my prayer is for you as a church, for us as a people to say, we are going to be faithful to God. But you're not going to be faithful unless you're devoted. You're not going to be devoted Unless you're faithful. They are tied together. And then in addition, I want to remind you that this picture of compromise, it's a symptom. It's a symptom. So when you see in your life compromise, compromise in what you watch, compromise in what you listen to, 
Compromise in how you spend your time, your resources, your effort. Compromise in your devotion to God. Compromise in your obedience. Compromise in your faithfulness to God. When you see that compromise, it is a symptom. It is a symptom of what? It's it's a symptom of a heart that is distracted. It's a symptom of obedience that is not completely given to God. It's a symptom of a life that is not holy. It's a symptom. It's not an accident. It's not a peculiar one-off thing. Compromise is a system. Symptom. Compromise is a symptom of the condition of the heart. How easy it is for us to see those compromises in our life and to say, it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. Christmas is about God sending his son Jesus because of our not very big deals. This whole season is about God sending his son because of the compromise in our lives and the need to be saved from that bondage of compromise. It is a big deal. So Spence, how do then I live devoted to God? Well, understand that devotion is a choice. You woke up this morning, you decided what you were going to do with your day. You decided what you were going to do with your time. I've said before that Sunday morning is a Saturday night decision. Sunday morning is a daily decision. What you do when you wake up is a daily thing. And brothers and sisters, so many times we think devotion is by default. We think devotion is by accident. Or we think that devotion is automatic. None of those things are true. Devotion is a choice. It's a discipline, but it's a choice. So whatever you walked in today, devoted to, is what you chose to be devoted to. I wonder this morning, how many of us walked in to this place today with a limp? Bow your heads with me.